Hello and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. I'm Jens Nelson. I'm Lucas Stock. And this is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Join us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life as we strive for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. Man, oh man, this is this is going to be a fun one. So Lucas and I were just chatting before we hit record. Uh, it turns out approximately three and a half years ago, uh, right at the beginning of this podcast, Lucas and I, uh, based on a Twitter challenge that was making the rounds, we decided that we too would offer our two cents on the four theologians who have influenced us the most. Um, back then, again, that was probably like March or April of 2020, so like many, many moons ago, and a lot can happen in three years. Um, and so shout out to a follower, a friend of the podcast, uh, Hayden. Hayden recently sent us a message uh, on Instagram stating like, hey, you guys should revisit your list of theologians that have impacted you because, you know, you change, you grow, you evolve. So who are the people that you currently are into or that influence your thinking? And well, here we are. So that that more or less is the uh, the, the introductory remarks on this episode. Uh, I guess one other piece to comment on, if you want, if you want to see ways in which we've either grown, uh, evolved, or perhaps have some over- overlap, you can go back. There is an episode called uh, Four Theologians, or something to that effect. If you, if you look up Four Theologians, you'll find it way back in like April of 2020. Um, the slight difference is that this time we're doing five. I don't know why, like, for some reason in my head when it was like, when I proposed this to Lucas, I was like, hey, we should revisit our five theologians, thinking it had been five, not four. So we created lists of five, so you're going to get all five. And so the way that this is going to go is we're just going to do a back and forth. Uh, we're going to have Lucas go first. He's going to give his first. I'll give my first. He'll give his second. I'll give my second, etc. So without any further ado, let's get into it. These are the five theologians, or I guess technically ten, but our individual list of five theologians that have impacted us, impacted our thinking, our hearts, our our theological journey. So, Lucas, take it away. Yeah, uh, these were always fun. We used to do somewhat regular, like, book list episodes, and those are always fun to put together lists of things you're you're interested in or, or whatever are endlessly fun for the people making the list and hopefully fun to listen to. I I, mean, I know, like, I feel like, you know, there are, like, top ten, you know, on YouTube, whatever, like, you know, whether you're into video games or sports or books or whatever, there's, like, you know, there's always, like, top ten best whatever of all time or worst or most surprising or whatever it might be. And um, even when I'm not necessarily that familiar with all the entries on the list, I do tend to find those those videos or podcasts fun to listen to and watch. So maybe I'm weird, but um, I hope this is this is fun. I don't know. We didn't we didn't set this as uh, we didn't like set any ground rules or not ground rules, but just like we didn't have any like limits um, for myself. I just basically went like no biblical writers um, because I think generally that's what. Um, you would mean if you were talking about theologians that are influential. Um, but obviously the, you know, writings of the biblical writers are 
fairly central and important when it comes to um, the construction of and development of our own personal theological outlooks and any of the writers and thinkers that we're going to talk about. So there's that. And then also for me, again, we didn't set this as a rule, but for me, this made the most sense. I'm just going to go in chronological order of when they lived. I'm not going to rank them in terms of like most to least influential or whatever. Um, so that's, that's my own approach. These are just five of them in chronological order from post writing of the Bible that, that have been or, or are or, or continue to be the most influential. Yeah. And um, I'll, I'll just real quick give it my, yeah. my, my two cents on that as well. I also excluded um, writers of scripture. Um, I also did not rank these like one to five, but I also didn't really put them in any sort of order other than just like perhaps the most interesting. Like, so not to say that one's less interesting than the other, but I figured like, to, to help give you guys some suspense. Like I wasn't going to give my most hot take as the first one, for example, or whatever. So as we go, that'll, that'll all unfold, I suppose, but there's no rhyme or reason other than that for me. So f- feel free to continue. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if this really matters, but we don't know each other's lists, which is, all, which is the way we typically do these list things or typically did when we did them more regularly. And that's always more fun for us and um, might lead to some, like back and forth questions or comments, like obviously um, you don't need my permission, but if you are like, well, what's up with that? And you have a question, like feel free, whatever. Um, and then also finally, we will like, I know I'm going to try to give sort of my rationale um, as uh, into like the specific area or the specific way that they've influenced me the most, like the reason that they came to mind. Um, and then also like books, you know, um, to to maybe entry point or maybe like the the work that is the most important that we that I've read or, or are familiar with or, or whatever um, try to give some kind of um, place for you to sort of build a, a reading list of you know five to ten <laughs> uh, theologians that we are certainly putting forward as uh, people that are um, important in our thinking and therefore you know we would say worth reading and engaging with. Um, but enough, enough talk. Let's, well, I guess keep talking, but let's move into the actual list. So first for me, which, um, I think would have been on the, on the old list if it was five. Um, uh, but I, th- I don't think he made the cut just cause I was trying to narrow it down to four at the time or whatever. But, um, and I thought about, I thought about not including him again, but, but I think t- realistically it's, this is this would be a pretty important one is is saint athanasius of alexandria um for those unfamiliar or have never heard of him before um he was patriarch of alexandria um while he was a deacon serving under um, patriarch alexander of alexandria he attended the council of nicaea um alexander is the guy who first confronted and censured arius who was a priest serving in um, Alexandria. And so from the very, very beginning of the Arian controversy, Alex, uh, Athanasius was, was involved. Um, he wrote major theological works, not just, uh, refuting Arianism, um, or strains of, you know, what we might classify together as Arianism, but also, um, we have like, um, sermons, we have festival letters and we have, you know, positive, 
constructive theological treatises that um, that are less polemical than like refuting a heresy kind of thing. Um, he had a long career as patriarch of, of uh, Alexandria. Um, he is uh, depicted on the back of my left leg. Uh, one of my most recent tattoos is a um, is a depiction of him, uh, which doesn't say anything about him, but uh, does say a little bit about my opinion of him. <laughs> um, I think, at least, uh, I intended it to be a, a sign of, of his influence and his significance in my own thought. Um, so it is kind of funny that I almost didn't mention him today. But, um, yeah, he, uh, for me, is most influential in terms of Trinitary, like being sort of the, the if, if it, you know, if you can sort of unhistorically narrow it down to, to one representative figure, he kind of represents Nicene Orthodoxy when it comes to the Trinity, when it comes to um, Christology, G, G, specifically Jesus's divinity and, and his status as a member of the Godhead, um, as well as the Holy Spirit, but especially um, Jesus in that he was dealing with Arianism mostly. But um, he, you know, there was, because of his his uh, staunch, you know, refusal to give up orthodoxy in the face of Arianism, including imperial pressure to do so, um, he earned the title or sort of the slogan, Athanasius Contra Mundum, Athanasius Against the World, um, and that sort of symbolically for me represents, you know, in in my pursuit of truth, in my pursuit of, of knowing God, um, and understanding his revelation and understanding the God we worship, um, as well as in the specific like details of his Trinitarian theology and his his view of Jesus's divinity, like um, that's where he's he's really a foundational figure for me. And uh, to to give a book, a book that we've talked about a lot, especially in the early days on this podcast, on the incarnation. Um, which is is pretty easy to find. Um, there's a popular patristics edition, um, which is a very readable translation. You can find it online in some older translations. I think um, would highly recommend this. With basically just his um, his sort of treatise, short-ish treatise, um, discussing the incarnation. So um, discussing w- who Jesus is and what he's done and what the incarnation means sort of metaphysically, but also what it means for us. Um, and I mean, really that, that could be all you engage with, with Athanasius and you'd, you'd be well served. Like that's definitely a, not just in terms of him and, and getting to know his theology a little bit, but that's definitely like a, a, that's not, that's a desert Island book, not just desert Island theology book, but for me, that's without a doubt, a desert Island book full stop. Um, so yeah, Athanasius is my numero, numero uno in terms of chronology, but he'd be close to the top, if not at the top, if I was ranking this. Okay. So I'm not surprised. I I figured that Athanasius was going to be on your list. So now that you've set him at the outset, I'm like, dang, who are the other four going to be? Um, you know, you know, what's interesting. I don't know if this was said last time. Like I probably should have just gone ahead and listened to like everything we did say. 
Um, but what I find so interesting and fascinating about like the time period that we live in is that like we're even able to do this. Like depending on where you lived in history, uh, I should say where and when, um, your five people were probably people that you lived with or lived in community with at least, you know, your pastor, your farmer, your like these people that you just lived and engaged with, like, unless you were somebody who traveled to different parts of the world and would be able to meet other pastors and priests and bishops, like you probably wouldn't have a list like this, but living in the 21st century. And even as I say this, it's kind of like mind boggling to think that like, if the world continues to exist for the next several hundred years, I mean, who knows? Like, what if in 500 years, somebody is able to access what we're saying right now? Like, I've never really had that thought until this moment that, like, Lucas and I are, like, broadcasting to people that are living currently, um, who are out there in time and space. And, like, what if in 10, 20, 30, 500 years, somehow, they're able to find this, and they listen to our list, like, ha, look at those peasants and their goofy theologians or whatever... Um, but I think it, when, when, so I'm about to get to my number one here, this or my first person, but it's interesting. I, I just wanted to say, in case you don't go back and listen to the other one, my list has completely changed. There is not a single repeat. My, my, my list last time was Paul Washer, R.C. Sproul, John Calvin, and John Piper. Those were the four theologians that I listed as being most influential. Again, not one of those four are in this list today. So... With all that out of the way, my number, my first, I should say, because again, these aren't ranked. The first person I'm going to talk about is actually a friend of the podcast. Um, he may or may not have uh, contributed on two different episodes. Um, just think for a moment. Let your let your gears turn. Let your gears turn. It's in fact Gavin Ortland. Um, what I really appreciate about Gavin is the way that he engages with other people across uh, denominational lines, um, across even like traditional lines, um, and the way that he does so very charitably. Um, I, I've read a number of Gavin's books as well. I've read Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals, which is a book we used to talk about a lot, that idea even of retrieval for the sake of renewal, like the, a lot of that came from books like this. Um, he's had books about re retrieving Augustine's um, doctrine of creation. So looking at a, do a particular doctrine. So not just like broad retrieval, uh, you know, in the abstract, but like, let's talk about creation, the way that Augustine talked and thought about creation, and how can we bring that into the 21st century. Um, he's had other books like Finding the Right Hills to Die on, which was about theological triage, sort of understanding the like, you know, what are things that we can disagree on and still retain fellowship? What are things that, like, are absolute necessities that everybody has to believe? And sort of discussing the lines. Um, so, like, that was really influential. But again, apart from just what I've read in his academic and, I guess, more non-academic circles, is just, like, watching him online. Which is, again, a very interesting thing about where we find ourselves. The fact that I can go to his Twitter sorry, his ex, I can go to Instagram, I can go to threads or whatever, I can go to his YouTube channel, Truth Unites, um, I can go watch him on other YouTube channels where he's, again, participated in these conversations about baptism, the Lord's Supper, I think he has some with uh, Jordan 
Cooper. Is that his, if I'm remembering correctly? He's got some episodes with Jordan Cooper, um, who's a Lutheran theologian. So, like, engaging on some of those things across denominational lines. Um, and so I've been, like, profoundly influenced by Gavin, I think. And I, I, I should have said this at the outset. Like, all of the people that I mention... I don't want my, like, endorsement to come across as, like, a wholesale agreement with everything that they've ever done. Like, I recognize that anybody on this list is a person, is fallible, has sin, has blind spots, just like myself. I would never want anybody to wholesale, like, just hop on the train with me and agree with everything I say. Um, but I think that there's still value that people add in the world. And I think the world is, like, a better place because of people like like Gavin. So... If you don't know who Gavin is, again, you can find him on all the socials. You can find him on his YouTube channel, Truth Unites. Um, if you want a book recommendation, the one that I have in front of me is Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals. The subtitle is "We or Why We Need Our Past to Have a Future. Um, this is published by Crossway a number of years ago now, but it, it is a really good book. It, it talks about you know how so many of us are restless for this idea of rootedness to be found in something greater than just the bland evangelical traditions that many of us find ourselves in. Um, and so he, 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 uh, throughout this book, he talks a lot about how many people are abandoning Protestantism altogether, um, which in his mind is something that we need not do. We can, we can find a rootedness in our own traditions. It's just that we've sort of lost them over the years. So, um, he, he focuses on particular doctrines, um, even some neglected theologians, to show how evangelicals can draw from the past to meet the challenges of our present. So, really influential book in my thinking, and that's why he made my list. So, that's my first one. Nice. Yeah, I'm actually funny. I, I haven't watched much of any uh, videos of his on YouTube recently, but I'm um, just, as of yesterday, I, I started watching. He just released a, like an hour-long discussion of mary's assumption and like going through some some stuff and i thought that that was seemed pretty interesting and and he made like a community post on his youtube talking about how this is like this might be my most important video which was very interesting to me uh given you know just i don't know that that intrigued me enough to click on it so good for you but um but yeah we'll we'll continue my number two or my next i'm going to keep saying number but i really just mean the next one person um is also unsurprising and this is the i believe only repeat from my prior list um but i feel i feel more justified in this uh in saying this now than i did at the time um saint cyril of alexandria um major figure in the Nestorian controversy. We've had episodes on um, Nestorius, Nestorianism, and so Cyril's made appearances there. Um, at the Council of Ephesus, St. Cyril uh, presided over it. He was he was sort of the, um, well, I should say Ephesus one, the third council. He was the the spearhead in, in that whole um, very, very messy and complicated, um, series of events historically and politically and ecclesiastically and all that stuff. But, um, a major figure on that ecumenical council, um, in that ecumenical council and, um, his theology really paved the way for, well, not just his theology, but also just his actual, like, engagement with Nestorius and, and Nestorianism, um, 
paved the way for the fourth council, the Council of Chalcedon. Um, and yeah, where he's where he's influential on me is is basically in how to think and speak and reflect about the central mystery of our faith, which is the incarnation. And it's a result of a lot of my, or, or one of the big reasons um, that I have developed such a strong Christocentrism when I think of theology and, and, and like sort of Christo maximalism um, where it really is all, it all boils down to, in my opinion, like reality really boils down to the incarnate Lord, Jesus of Nazareth. And the, one of the big influences and, and factors in that is my study of Cyril and the controversies and, and doctrines that he was so influential in and involved with. Um, I, you know, I wrote in for my MDiv, I wrote a thesis evaluating Chalcedon and, and, um, a big chunk of that was taking a deep dive in Cyril's language and, and his method. Um, and, and method is also another thing that I've, that I've come to, um, benefit greatly from with Cyril is, is his, um, his sort of, he, he strives in, in these new controversies to maintain a Nicene, um, orthodoxy and to, to, to not, I don't know that it would be fair to call it retrieval, but to, to, um, organically respond to new challenges without any sense of innovation in innovation as in something new but innovation in the sense of creatively applying that which was delivered, that faith which was once delivered to the saints in his day and age, which I think is exactly what um, all generations do and, and must do and don't really have a choice. And I think that's that's the, the core of like the core ethos behind this idea for sort of rootless Protestants seeking to retrieve that which has come before, um, ultimately to do that in a way that's not just sort of like, you know, you're a bit of an antiquarian and you just like this stuff. So you just make it your personality. Um, but also not just to sort of pay lip service, but to genuinely, um, be shaped by that, that which has gone before. I think Cyril is a great example of that as well. So, um, if you're going to read one thing, I'd probably say on the unity of Christ again, pretty accessible, uh, uh, convenient, um, popular patristics translation from St. Vlad's. And um, also, if you want something a little more uh, analytical and academic, um, John A. McGuckin's St. Cyril of Alexandria and the Christological Controversy is a long book that has translations of a lot of texts from both Cyril and Nestorius. Um, and then also extensive historical and theological analyses of the Council of Ephesus and the controversies leading into Chalcedon, as well as um, a long chapter on what Cyril's theology really was based on close readings of his of his writings. So um, those are a couple options to, to learn more from and or about about Cyril. But yeah, Athanasius and Cyril. It's hard to beat Alexandria. Right, man. I, I guess, yeah, I'm not surprised that he he's on your list as well. Um, my second theologian today, um, not one that we've talked about in great detail, but this is somebody who just sort of like along the way over the last several years has influenced my thinking, 
uh, my theology, my engagement, but that's none other than the um, our recently passed brother, Tim Keller. Um, I had the pleasure of hearing Tim speak in person um, at the Gospel Coalition a few years ago. Um, it was a really profound message that he gave on um, how we can interact with with people who are different than us. He, he used the story of Jonah as sort of like his text and the foundation, um, which actually led me to the book that I would recommend, which is, it's been published under two names, originally published as The Prodigal Prophet. Um, it is now published as Rediscovering Jonah. It's the same book, just different titles, um, published by Penguin. Uh, but Tim Keller just like had a way of speaking had a way of writing, had a way of engaging with the world that to me was a breath of fresh air. It was different. It was unique. If you want to hear us actually talk about some of these things, we did have a recent Christians of History episode um, shortly after he passed away where we talked about him, his life, his theology, his works. Um, so without going into too much detail, like he just had a way of making the biblical story alive so to speak more real to me like if, again the example is is jonah and you know that we like jonah on this podcast i mean we had a whole month called january where one january we talked about jonah for four consecutive weeks you know one chapter each week um but it's like this tiny little book in the bible right like if you are not careful you're probably going to flip over it because it probably only takes up a page or two in your actual bible um, but he just like had a way of like reading and studying scripture and then like representing it to a reader to make it like new and alive and like make sense like so many times when we think about jonah we just think about the fact that he was like swallowed by a fish was in the belly of the fish and then like was vomited out on land but there's all sorts of stuff going on below the surface. Um, and I remember one of the most profound things he said, and this is like what had like an impact on me initially and caused me to want to like go down this rabbit trail of, of studying Jonah deeper. Um, but he talks about like Jonah's greatest sin was that he was, quote, very inhuman in his attitude towards Nineveh. And I was just like captivated by that idea, like that someone could almost become inhuman in their attitude and almost in their hatred towards other people. And I think there's a lot of ways in which that can uh, apply to situations today. And so we, as as believers, ought not let those similar sins and problems enter our own hearts or our, our own minds. Um, but uh, unlike Jonah, we should have compassion on, on the people that God is having compassion on and, and not get upset about plants and worms and all these like just tiny tangential things um, when there are like very real people. And if you don't care about the people, at least care about the cattle, Jonah. Um, so like, yeah, love Tim Keller, love his works. Um, he he certainly will be missed in the sense that we, could, we are no longer with him in this existence, but we still have his works. We have his sermons, YouTube videos, and in glory one day can, can hang out with him again. But um, that's my, my second theologian. Nice. Um, for me, my third is St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, there was a lot of influence on me as I kind of learned more about him by reading him and by reading those who he influenced, which is everybody in the West after the 13th century, um, uh, throughout seminary and, um, 
obviously the the book or the work is the Summa. Not that I've read even close to a sizable fraction of, of you know, the entire Summa. But um, it is very much the case that uh, you can't get away from his legacy. Um, if, like I said, if you're if you're a Western Christian, um, you can't get away from what he was able to synthesize from at his at his point, you know, a little over a millennia a millennium of um, Christian history, reflection, theology, thinking. Um, but he was also, of course, quite devoted and pious. Um, you know, he famously ended his life in a in an ecstatic. Uh, mystical experience that caused him to stop writing um, and you can really see like what you know faith seeking understanding looks like in the rigor of piety and reflection and and, and thought that um, Aquinas has but also um, his use of philosophy I think is very important um, to give us to help us to see what what faith-seeking understanding looks like, what a sanctified reason looks like in, in practice. Um, and also, like last but not least, just his, his the, the scholastic method. Um, if for no other reason than it's, than it's so in, influential um, from the medieval Western church, uh, you should be familiar with it. And um, his, his method, his methodology, um, while it's it's not you know enough by itself to have you know a healthy um, faith or a healthy uh, theology, um, it is indispensable for really analyzing these and reflecting on questions of specific doctrines, questions of God and revelation and mankind and salvation. Um, so, yeah, I think. Um, he's a giant for a reason and he's popular today, uh, for, for a variety of reasons, but, um, that, you know, the popularity and, and reputation alone don't make somebody worthy of those, of those things. But I do believe that, um, it would be, it would be tough to argue that he's not worthy of the legacy that he's, um, had over the last 800 years or so. Um, and this was this was a tough one. I, I almost put Augustine in this spot, um, but if you get Aquinas, you 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 know Aquinas is very much Augustinian. There's no there's no doubt about that. So I think that that kind of tipped it over the edge for me. Is you can not that not that you can ignore Augustine as long as you have Aquinas, but just that um, a lot of Augustine's influence is is by virtue of me being later in history filtered a lot through Aquinas' influence as well. So I thought that that was, that made it worthy of the spot. So yeah, the Summa is available online. You can pick up, Peter Kreeft has a shorter Summa and then he has a Summa of the Summa. Um, he's got a couple of different, different lengths of shortened and, and, and summarized versions of um, picking some of the most important questions that Thomas addresses, but um, poking around in the Summa, um, you can, you can go to online and you can, you can see, you know, search by topics that are interesting or whatever, but yeah, perhaps we'll have for Aquinas. Sound, I mean, yeah, agreed. And and perhaps we'll have like a little, um, you know, honorable mentions type of deal, like people that just narrowly missed the cut. Augustine similarly just narrowly missed, um, 
making it on my list. And as I think about it, like, this person that I'm about to bring up is my only historic theologian, which is interesting. Like, I'm influenced by historical theologians all the time, whether I know it or not, because in some sense, we're standing on the shoulders of those who have come before us. But as I think about my theology today, it's like, who has impacted me and in what ways? Well, it's like, it's, it's people that I can see and hear and not necessarily talk to, but in some sense can engage with. Um, but again, that is not the case with this next person who happens to be St. Basil the Great. Basil, you know, we, we've heard it both ways, but St. Basil the Great, um, he's come up a number of times. I can't remember exactly when, but Lucas and I did uh, an episode on, on his book called On Social Justice, which is about... Um, you know, I will tear down my barns, talking about um, warnings to the rich, like more or less a commentary on like social engagement, um, living in the world. And again, this was written in, I mean, he lived from 330 to 379 AD. So just a couple hundred years after Christ and <laughs> quite literally thousands of years ago from us. And so like, you wouldn't think so, but as you read this book, you're like, whoa, it sounds like he could very much be talking to me and my 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 comrades today. Um, but especially like in some of his his um um I guess like it, it, the ways in which he calls out just I mean blatant sin, but also just like those things that sort of like fester below the surface, like, um, like I remember particularly he he was talking he was talking to and about the rich and he was like you guys like have couches that are laden with fine purples and linens and they're made of uh, marble when it's like you can have a normal couch why do you need to have this couch that costs more than a person's year in wages um, and like again very much so uh, can parallel our existence today. You could say something like, sir, why do you need that $200,000 car when you could get a car for twenty to 30000 and it's the same, it functions just the same. It's a car. It gets you from point A to point B. Why do you need the the name brand? Why do you need the, the this particular logo or emblem? Um, and like getting to like that root thing in your heart. What is it about that thing that is causing you to gravitate towards that rather than something more um, practical even and would allow you to take care of your neighbor, to take care of your um, your friend who is suffering? And so, like, man, it's funny because, Lucas, the, the first two people you talked about, I also have the books you mentioned on my shelf right next to this one because it's part of the... Um, uh, popular patristic series the the um the, that saint vladimir seminary press puts out um and like all these books written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago but like profoundly relevant and just like i think every christian regardless of who you are academically um not academic at all like read these books like they're important Again, this one in particular is on social justice. I know that might be like a buzzword to some people, but that's not what it means. Um, read it, <laughs> apply it to your heart, and like see where this might be uh, speaking to the sin that that you perhaps are not even aware exists in your life. But man, can't say enough about Basil, Basil, uh, the the great Cappadocian father. So um, that's that's my number three. Sweet. Um, my next one, um, is, uh, Thomas Cranmer. 
And the reason is, unlike some of these other ones, is, is less, you know, a system, an influence from, you know, a systematic theological doctrinal um, perspective. But I was thinking about, you know, influence and the way that I, um, the way that I think, the way that I worship, the way that I pray um, is very much the, in the, um, in the shape that it is because of the influence of Thomas Cranmer through the Book of Common Prayer. Um, and theologically as well as one of the leading English reformers um, in in terms of uh, doctrinal reform. Um, but that aside, most directly in, in like a practical day-to-day sort of sense, um, very much in a, in a devotional and piety arena, his influence is, you know, not not his alone. Like it wasn't it wasn't a one man show, but certainly um, to to sort of trace back to individuals who who um, are are influential. Um, Thomas Cramer's work reforming the English liturgy um, and well in creating the English liturgy um, that has served as the basis for the third largest communion of Christians in the entire globe for the last nearly 500 years goes, you know, goes to show the extent of the way that this, that the Book of Common Prayer, uh, you know, has and continues to influence not just me, but millions of people in terms of how they pray and how they worship. And so for that reason, um, you know, a little bit different than the others on this list in terms of the sort of the the avenue of influence, um, but I think there's a case to be made, and, and I mean, I, I don't think it's much of a case so much as just, like, an honest reflection that because of that, he, like, be, he's the most, the most influential on me in the sense that um, there's literally not a day that goes by that I don't, I don't pray, think, act, or speak in a way that is directly... Um, caused by or shaped by um, the the sort of worship and and life that the prayer book um, provides uh, for provides and and shapes and and uh, sort of sort of calls forth out of out of you. So um, Thomas Kramer, read the Book of Common Prayer. Um, IVP has a great edition of you know slightly modernized edition of the 1662 which is the standard um but you can find um you can find texts of of any edition going all the way back to cranmer's first one in 1549 um and they're actually they're coming out with pew editions of the the 1662 international edition i saw um which is great because the 1662 international edition that Samuel Bray and Drew Keane did um, is fantastic, but was printed in a very sh- like short and stubby, thick sort of mini uh, format, uh, which is great for travel, but but a little tougher to use. But they're coming out with you know a much more usable pew-sized edition as well as a service book for the big books for use by ministers and stuff. So anyway, um, that's a great place to start. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm currently using the 
the uh, 2005 edition uh, put out by the Reformed Episcopal Church because that's that's the church I'm, I'm worshiping in now. But um, you can't really go wrong. So Book of Common Prayer, Thomas Cranmer. Solid. Which yeah. I think we've also done episodes on both Cranmer and separately the Book of Common Prayer. So there's definitely like a theme. You can kind of sense like the things that we care about and talk about on this podcast. Like these are the people influencing even the episodes we do. Um, in, a, in a very similar vein, when I think about like my engagement in the world, when I think about the the conversations that I have, um, I think a lot of people share this like sentiment, this feeling. Um, they 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 share this almost like disillusionment. Like, so uh, what I'm about to say, I'm sure some of you can relate to. But like when I think about my 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 education, my upbringing. Like, there are so many things that feel like that they, they just, like, don't connect or there's there's missing pieces or I didn't have the full picture. Um, and what I'm getting at is, in particular, a book that really impacted me by this person. Um, so the book is called Unsettling Truths, which is, like, an incredible title um, because the subtitle is The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery. Um, so this is a book by Mark Charles, um, along with Sun Chan Ra. Um, but Mark Charles is this particular theologian, probably somebody that most people haven't heard of, unless you've heard of this book. Um, not like super prominent or anything, but when I found this book that's published by IVP, um, it was, I mean, it was like, on one sense earth shattering but also like okay a lot of things are starting to make sense and so if you don't know mark charles he is a native american um, activist public speaker consultant author Um, he's uh, a journalist a blogger a reformed pastor and a computer programmer so like lots of lots of things that he's done in his life but he he's a, a man of navajo and dutch descent so his dad was Navajo, his mother was Dutch American, um, he grew up in New Mexico, um, but has written extensively on the complexities of American history, race, culture, and faith, and how, how all of those things sort of exist together. And so what I was trying to get at is like, when, especially when I grew up in, in school, in my education, learning about America, learning about American history... You think of like the the quote unquote doctrine of discovery. It's like America wasn't discovered. There were people living here, but we call it, we we talk about it as if like Columbus and his fellows like you know discovered these lands and and made them great and beautiful and amazing. As if the people that weren't here weren't already thriving and living and and existing as as image bearers as humans. Um, and so again, this book, Unsettling Truths, so there's a little bit of like a pun, because um, it's talking about like colonization, um, the doctrine of discovery, but this book talks a lot about like westward expansion, and like we like to celebrate Abraham Lincoln for, you know, quote unquote, freeing the slaves and all that he did during the Civil War, but if you've ever read anything about what he did in the doctrine of expansion, you know, heading out west as we started to fill up the East Coast, it is brutal. There's probably no president with more blood on his head than Abraham Lincoln. Um, and so the the big tagline of this book is you cannot discover lands already inhabited. Um, 
And so he he unpacks American history, um, theology, how to engage with these topics, because so many of us, I think, have what I'm just going to call sort of a, a whitewashed, like trying to like clean up the edges, make it feel very like um, like noble almost as if like the things that we did, like we're in the pursuit of like God and, 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 and good things. Um, but it's like, man, there was a lot of death. There was a lot of lying. There was a lot of betrayal. There was a lot of just like sin involved to like get to where we are today. And so like, in some sense, we live on lands. We live in places where we literally pillaged, we destroyed, we, we obliterated entire communities and civilizations in the name of what? In the, for whom? Um, and I think in some sense, there is, uh, there is great judgment that will come upon our country for the things that we did. Obviously, none of us were there. None of us were alive when this happened. And so we're not, in a sense, culpable. However, we do exist in a time where there are, are reverberations of what happened. We live in a land where, where racism does still exist, where there are still very much issues that pertain to um, native inhabitants of, of our land, of Canada, of other parts of this quote-unquote discovered land. And so how do we engage? How do we have conversations? How do we heal um, and go forward? So like Mark Charles was sort of like the first person, I think, that like introduced me to these ideas. Um, like the, and like where, where the rubber really hits the road is like, okay, so like I, Mark Charles has a blog um, that he writes pretty extensively in. So like I, I do read that from time to time. Um, but where the rubber hits the road is like, when we think of stuff like pipelines, for example, so like the Dakota Access Pipeline, the Keystone Pipeline, these are big projects that the United States government, you know, has their hands in, but also these these companies like TransCanada and ANR. Um, and the reason I know all of this is because it directly pertains to the work that I do every single day. Um, I work for a company that is in this industry, this industry of oil and gas and, and pipelines. Um, and the, the challenging thing is, is that like this infrastructure already exists. It does in a sense have to continue to exist if we want to have the world remain like it is today. Um, and so like, I've had to wrestle with this, like I have sold products to the Keystone pipeline that is right now currently canceled. The Biden administration put it on pause when he was elected um, but like we sold products to that very project that's probably just sitting in a warehouse. Um, so again, like thinking about like culpability, thinking about like, can I have like a sense of like peace working in this industry? And I do. And I'll say the reason I do is because again, this infrastructure exists. It's out there. It's in the ground. You guys don't even realize how many miles and miles and miles of pipeline exists literally in your backyard, under the roads, in next to your interstates like it's it's in there it's out there it's how the world works these days um, and so if those things are going to exist we should keep them safe we should protect them from explosions from leaks from problems and that's what our company does so like the company i work for we produce products that keep pipelines you know oil gas uh, all sorts of products we keep them safe they we we provide protection um, from those very real possible explosions. And so like, as I've sort of even wrestled with this, it's like, yes, these things should be done ethically. These things should not be done in a way that subverts, um, you know, established 
uh, treaties or agreements or pacts or other things. And so, like, yeah, Dakota Access Pipeline, Keystone Pipeline, like, don't do things that are bad. Don't do things that are going to be problematic for the people currently living in these places. Um, and so, anyway, that's sort of, like, my roundabout way of saying, like, Mark Charles has, like, been really important as I've thought through... Uh, how to engage with people that are different than me, that have different experiences than me, um, that in some ways, like, uh, we've sort of manufactured a history to make it look more noble and, like, proud than it we probably actually should be. We should probably be a little bit more, like, uh, heartbroken over our past as opposed to celebrating it. You know, when we celebrate 4th of July, I'm like, man, I don't feel good celebrating our independence like sure we achieved independence uh, independence from britain uh but what did we do to all the people that were here um so anyway that's that's my my long longer uh number four so yeah i mean much much to be said there of course just like regardless of who you are just big topics and and what perspective big topics for sure so we can't, unfortunately, just for time, we can't really unpack much more than that now, but, but maybe, maybe another time. But um, the last person I'll, I will talk about today um, might be a little, you know, it's, it's a little more out there, um, but uh, Sergei Bulgakov, 20th, you know, early to mid 20th century um, Russian Orthodox um priest and, and theologian, um, emigre following, you know, in the early 20s, sort of forced to leave following the Bolsheviks um, takeover and uh, landed in Paris where he was important in starting and then teaching dogmatics at the St. Sergius Institute in um, in Paris, which was a, is a major um, orthodox theological college and training center and, and um center of, of academic theology that, that was started by um, mainly Russian emigres in the, in the um, 1920s, I believe, or the Institute might not have been started until the 30s, but in the 20s and 30s in Paris due to, um, due, due to everything that was going on in Russia, which, which is, again, big topics. But, um, but uh, yeah, Bulgakov is, is weird. He is a weird guy. Uh, well, not really a weird guy. I think he's a pretty awesome um guy in a lot of respects but a weird theologian um one of the things he's best known for is his work on sophiology which is just a huge tangly topic that would be too hard to explain shortly mainly because i don't quite understand it because it is it's it's bizarre and it's complex and it's out there, but um, that in itself indicates sort of where my chief area of influence has come from him. Um, I would say if I had to like summarize the the way that he has been most influential on me in reading his works over the last several years um, is in his 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 creativity and his theological imagination, and I don't going back to sort of like what I said before about um, Cyril, like innovation, not in the sense of inventing something new. Um, I mean, a similar thing with creativity, not in the sense of 
inventing new things or, or bringing in totally new and foreign ideas into the discipline of Christian theology. Um, but creativity in the sense of his, his thinking and his mind approached issues of theology, doctrinal topics, reflections on things like the Trinity and things like uh, creation and deification. Um, important figures like John the Forerunner and, and the Virgin Mary and, and angels and all these things. Um, he, he thinks about, um, he's, he's a brilliant writer and a brilliant mind and a dense a dense thinker so i don't pretend to totally be tracking with him whenever i read him but like again that creativity and that that really really broad theological imagination where he he has such a cosmic vision of what it means to do theology and what um what being a christian is and and what the story of the universe found and, and summed up in Christ is, um, is really, is really where I think his weirdness doesn't matter, right? Like, like he, he, he has perspectives where you might be like, I just can't get on board with any of these specific claims that he's making. Um, and honestly, I don't think that that would be problematic. And I don't think it's a reason to not recognize his brilliance, especially in this imagination that he has, where he really does sort of see, he ha he has, to me as I read him, I'm I'm sort of inspired and called to to when I'm doing theology, quote unquote, you know, in like the the aim and the purpose of my theological reflection and work to to hold a universal perspective universal in the sense of um everything is finds you know our 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 colossians one cosmic christ passage everything holds together in him and that as sort of a a you know a point of departure for everything else you do theologically i think uh really shapes the kind of theologian i want to be and I think Bulgakov is a is an example of that. Again, even if you were to pick up a book on sophiology or his book on the Virgin Mary and be like, well, you know, like, oh, this is interesting, but I don't know about, you know, X, Y, Z, I just, whatever, like not, not convincing or this is bizarre. I think fine, you know, like, like I agree, like it is weird, a lot of it. Um, like I, I, the book, I, the book I'll recommend because it's fairly short, <laughs> Um, and therefore, even though it's not really an easy read, it, it, I read it in like two days, like it's a quick read, um, is, is a book called, I forget what the, the title that it was published under this edition and translation that I read. Um, but it's, it's, it's called, I think it's called the wisdom of God, an introduction to sociology, I think. Um, and it, it's sort of the closest thing to like a succinct introduction he, he made, he wrote it. In, in his more mature years, sort of in response to a lot of criticism. Um, because he was actually like, like the Russian ecclesial authorities actually like censured him because of his sophiology. He was, event he, he was, you know, tried and, and investigated and, and they, they did not uh, deem him to be um, a heretic. Uh, 
but some of his teachings were censured. Um, and so that gives him a little bit of an edgy and interesting biographical background as well. But that book is really, really fascinating. And it, and it really is, it really is cosmic in scope, what he's trying to do as he's reflecting on who God is, what God is, and the creation's relationship to its creator, um, and really evaluating that in the light of Chalcedonian Orthodoxy and Nicene Trinitarian theology. Um, because whatever you want to say about him, he was in all respects, you know, capital O, an Orthodox priest. And he, he you see that in his work. Um, so Bulgakov, bit of a weirdo, but super fun. So I would really recommend it. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and yeah, just to capture that imagination, that, that scope is something I really want to pursue in my own, in my own thinking. Very nice. Yeah. I, I, perhaps I've encountered this individual, not even going to try to say their name, but, um, certainly did not see that one coming. So that's that, that probably maybe listeners and you will share a similar feeling when I give you my final theologian of the day. Um, one of the things I wanted to say, um, it sort of makes me sad that both on our last list and our list today up until now, we haven't featured any female theologians. That's not to say we don't engage or enjoy female th theologians, but I think church history has sort of had a way um, perhaps of not intentionally, maybe sometimes intentionally, but definitely not amplifying or elevating uh, female voices. So I figured we would do so today, not just for sake of doing so, but because this person has actually really impacted my thinking. Um, but this person, I'm just going to be a little bit coy as I read their bio here. This person is an American historian uh, who is currently the James Vardaman Endowed Professor of History at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. Her specialties include European women, medieval and early modern England and church history, her 2021 book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth, um, received widespread media coverage and two years later is still um, receiving widespread media coverage. Um, but the author is none other than Beth Allison Barr. Um, again, the book, um, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. I remember when I read this book, I mean, first of all, I was excited to read the book. I knew um, from all the social media... Um, depending on what side of the aisle you're on, there was a lot of cries for like having her burned at the stake. And then there were other cries for like, man, this is like a much needed, very important theological work. And I remember just from all that being like, wow, I need this book right when it comes out and I'm going to read it as quickly as possible. And I did. And I've read it twice since then. So I think once per, well, I actually haven't read it this year. So I must've read it twice in 21 and once in 22 um, but just like, again, regardless of where you are theologically, like you sort of have to wrestle with our history, whether it was American history, like Mark Charles, whether it's more church history, like Beth Allison Barr, like you need to wrestle with history in its reality, not history. in it's like, I like this version of it, or I like this story. Um, but like what actually happened? How did we get to where we are today? Again, we stand on the shoulders of those who come before us for better and worse. Not better or worse. We are on the shoulders of everybody that comes before. So we're on the shoulders of the bad and we're on the shoulders of the good. And sometimes those things start to blend together and become murky. And you can't always differentiate the 
the quote-unquote good and bad. Um, and so to wrestle with this idea of, of quote, biblical womanhood, um, to talk about subjugation, um, to, to, to wrestle with complementarian versus egalitarian, um, like, what does all that mean? And so, like, what I really like, I mean, I do enjoy this book. I think it's a perfect, um, I think it's a, a really good book. It is not a perfect book. No book is. I would, it would be silly to think that any book is perfect because it's written by a human, edited by other humans, um, read yet even more by more humans, um, but what what I what I appreciate probably more than anything about Beth Allison Barr is like in the face of the constant backlash, even two years removed from the release of this book, like the way that Beth Allison Barr engages online is like second to none. I can't think of anybody that is more kind and gracious and compassionate in the face of like awful people throwing the most vile comments her way, like, talking about her husband and her children, even. I'm just like, guys, this is not Christ-honoring. This is not good or holy or anything like that. It is It is sinful. It is wrong. And many men and women, um, but many men need to repent of the ways that they've treated Beth Allison Barr as a result of a book. Like, again, I can't, I mean, if there was a way to, like, if Christian, I mean, I guess Christians are doing this, but if there was a way for Christians to ban Christian books, this would be, like, at the top of the list, I feel like, in very conservative circles. Um, but again, not because necessarily what she's saying here is blasphemous, because, but because it challenges their assumptions, it challenges their, I think, um, some of their worldview. Um, and so, for me, where this, like, where this starts to impact my thinking as I have sort of over the last several years wrestled with, um, engaged with, and and thought about my own upbringing, the ways that I've thought about my theological thinking, my evolution, like we need more theological works like this. We need to not engage so, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like. I mean, charitable is one word, but we, 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 we truly need to wrestle with reality and not the, I think, sometimes artificial realities that we like to, to, to put up in our minds. And so, um, I don't know, more, more can be said on this. At this point, we're past the hour mark, which I know is longer than most of our episodes recently, so I don't want to get too into the weeds. So again, perhaps we'll have a, a deeper, longer conversation here in the short-term future, but... Um, like books like this are important. You should read. You should read them carefully. You should read them theologically. You should not just dismiss somebody because you think that they are in a different theological camp. Um, but again, like Gavin Ortland. Again, if we're gonna go back to the very beginning of this episode, the way that I think about Gavin, the way that he thinks and engages with other people, we need more of that. We need more charity. Um, we need more even like a lot of this is what Lucas and I try to do. I mean, Lucas and I try to have unity despite the real diversity that him and I share. And so, like, how can we take a book like this and a theologian like this and and read it, the work, and not just want to cry it as blasphemy or heretical? Because it's not. If you actually read the book, it's not. Um, it, it just is wrestling with our history and sort of where we were and where we are and how can we go forward. So, Again, really important book. I appreciate, I, I'm guessing Beth is not listening to this episode, but if somehow she does, like, Beth, I appreciate you. I know you and I have engaged several times online and, and 
private chats and such about some of these things. I, imp- I appreciate you. I appreciate the way that you engage with um, with not only people that you're in alignment and agreement with, but those who you disagree with. And I'm sorry the ways in which many people have um, mistreated you and sinned against you. And I mean, in the end, at the end of time, um, you know, we will stand before a king, before our before the throne of, of Christ and uh, give an account for the words that we said in person, the ways that we engaged with people that we encounter every day. But also the way that we engage online, the way that we engage on social media, on on Twitter, Facebook, whatever. And so that's my my call, my warning to some of to some of you and myself um, that like be careful the way that you're posting. I mean, like X is turning into the I I don't even have like appropriate words for a podcast, but the freaking weirdest place these days with the weirdest theology the weirdest ideology and i'm talking like owen strand i'm i'm I, I like was almost like cheering on owen strand who like i am not a fan of right now but like if you think that owen strand is woke and that he's like a liberal how far right are you and and i'm just like we need people like gavin like all the people we've mentioned, I think we need more people like this engaging and thus like lay people like us, people that don't have large followings and large online established presences. Like we need to be more gentle, hospitable, kind, generous, have more humility because like it is the wild, wild west out there. Um, and my fear is like, this is what you're posting online. So what are your churches like? People that are coming into your to into your pews, into your seats, like what are they being fed? Um, I'm a little afraid, honestly, truth be told, for for some of the future. And so we need people that are like more level-headed, more theologically rooted, um, and not rooted in in kinism and racism and bipartisan like politics and blah blah blah. Now I'm off the rails, but all that to say. <laughs> um, yeah, Beth Allison Barr, great, great theologian. Again, none of, none of these people are perfect. I don't idolize any of these five people, but I think that they are impacting the way that I think. They're impacting my head, which in turn impacts my heart, which in turn impacts the way that I engage in the world and how I treat people. And so, like, I am a better person, a better theologian, and a better Christian because of the five people that I've mentioned on this episode. So, what do you got, man? No, that's a good way to summarize, like, what you just said. Uh, it's a good way to summarize the importance and the, the like, benefits, quote-unquote, that that come from being influenced by these people. Just, like, um, and some people might not look at them as benefits. They might say, oh, that's a bad influence, so-and-so or such-and-such. But, um, but yeah, I do remember, like, like back 2020, 2021, um, I, I, th- I think, at least, that I remember, like, a few... There were a few sort of like similarly like um, similar topics, similar levels of controversy, similar levels of of media coverage, like new books published in sort of that same little that same like general neighborhood of 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 ideas. Um, and I and I remember at the time thinking I never read any of them. <laughs> and I remember at the time thinking that recovering. I'm sorry. The making of biblical womanhood sounded like the most interesting and valuable one to read, and then 
totally forgot about it until you just mentioned it. So, um, yeah. that's, um, it's a, I, I was, I'm glad you said you brought it up like among other reasons, just because it reminded me that that was a book that I've, I've always thought sounded like it was worth reading and, um, yeah, certainly is definitely add to my list, um, because of that. But yeah, I mean, we're, we, we're, we're cruising along well over an hour here and, um, I'm going to stop telling you before we hit record that I expect this episode to be short or this episode <laughs> to to be quick because it always ends up being a longer one because whenever I say that it's for some reason around a, we just we could go all day man that's just we, how we yeah. are yeah and I mean like you know we 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 could go all day like like limit like I already mentioned um struggles with deciding between Aquinas and Augustine to to you know sort of keep it to five um there are um, believe it or not, there are a couple of um, living theologians that I wanted to include, um, but I, I just I didn't feel um, I don't know I, I didn't feel they were as influential. They're yeah. they're my two, but my two I'll just throw them out. My two favorite yeah. living theologians are um, Sarah Coakley, English Anglican priest. Um, her book. Um, Oh shoot. God and Desire, an essay on the Trinity is sort of um it, it's it's her supposed to be the first volume of, of a three or four volume systematic. It's the only one she's published, but that book, The New Asceticism, fantastic. Just just amazing and glad to to be of the same tradition as her. And then um Khaled Anatolios at Notre Dame, um, huge, hugely influential in his approach to a, a rigorously historical systematics and and really actually using the the resources of the tradition to to um, like he has a book called Retrieving Nicaea, um, fantastic. I'm currently reading his, I believe, most recent book. Um, because he has another one coming out with Erdman's that I don't think is out yet. So technically, um, his most recent book, Deification Through the Cross. Um, really, I, I'd like to do an episode on that when I finish it, just because because his his thesis is so um, is so compelling. Where he he's really rejecting the 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 idea of the models of the atonement um, as if you just needed to pick one, um, and depending on whether you're an Eastern or a Western Christian, that determines you know which ones you pick kind of thing. And he's like, well, actually, you know, let's take an, take another look at that. So highly recommend that book. Um, so yeah, anyway, um, those are a couple of, I guess you'd say honorable mentions for me. I don't know if you've got anybody who like, do. you wanted to put on, but you know, had to keep it to five that come to mind or, yeah. or anybody else you'd put in if you could. There were a few, I made a list of about 10 or 11 and I was like, dang, I got to narrow this like in half. Um, I, I think of people like Herm, Her, uh, Herman Bavink, um, I think of other people like Marva Dawn, which is probably relatively unknown, but I, re- I read three of her books at Moody and they were just like incredible. Um, this one would have probably got me in some hot water, but like recently read a book um, by this person, N.T. Wright. Um, I know like kind of a hot take, probably like some stuff that is not good, some other stuff that is good, but still, again, I, I've been trying to read people outside of just, like, my general tradition. Like, I think most people should, and to try to engage charitably with them. 
Um, and so I, I remember in college, for example, I had to read a book. It, I can't remember even the class. It might have been senior seminar, a class like that. But we had to read like an N.T. Wright book and then like John Piper's response to N.T. Wright. And I just remember thinking like, man, N.T. Wright seems legit. But then like this guy that I like, John Piper, is like completely against him. So I was like, where do I land on this? <laughs> um, and so it's been kind of fun to revisit some of those later. Um, I already mentioned Augustine. Um some of my others were going to be um, people, even Lucas has mentioned, um, Cyril of Alexandria, like Athanasius, like not, they, the, part of like the thing that I, w I had a hard time with is like all of the people that I mentioned, it's not like I'm, it's not like I've exhausted all of their works. Like I haven't read all of Keller's books or all of uh, Ortland's books or whatever, but like these are the people that have like left an, a lasting impact on me, no matter how many works I've read. And they, I continue to think about them and their works. And so that's what I was sort of wrestling with. And like Lucas said, those two at the beginning, like those have like, man, deeply impacted how I think about the incarnation and the Trinity and stuff like that. So that's sort of my, my honorable mentions, so to speak. Sweet. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, Tole Lege, take up and read some of these books and and um, books you haven't read or books that it's been a while. Um, I know, I know, I will if I ever have time. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, thanks for tuning in, especially if you made it this far. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Doxology Podcast. Um, you can find us on social media, unfortunately, because I actually was, I was going to say, I disagree with you. I don't think we need more people interacting on social media like Beth Allison Barr. I think everyone, including wonderful people like her, need to just get off social media because it's just, um, I don't think it's good. But we're still there at Doxology Podcast, or of course, available by email at doxologypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your, your feedback, questions, your top five, top one, top ten people who have influenced you theologically, um, whatever it may, the case may be. Um, please reach out. We love interacting and, and hearing from you. Um, and whether we hear from you through one of those channels or you hear from us next time we come out with a new episode, we'll see you later. Hey, be nice if you are on social media. Be nice. And nice scene. <laughs> <laughs>